This past December marked the formal end to combat operations for NATO forces in Afghanistan, but you could have been forgiven for having missed it. The war in Afghanistan, although the longest in United States history, has often been overshadowed, first by the Iraq War, then by a succession of crises in the Middle East and beyond. From afar, the situation in Afghanistan seemed mired in futility, with progress scant and the reason for our involvement increasingly muddled. It'd be hard to argue that our collective attention hadn't shifted, as it so often does in matters of great import that refuse to limit themselves to tidy plot lines. Although the official mission may be over, nearly 10,000 U.S. troops are still in Afghanistan, along with thousands more from other coalition nations, and billions of U.S. tax dollars are spent every year to rebuild the country and support its government. Perhaps we should care more about what's going on there. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by HKS alum Sean Carberry. Sean worked as NPR's Kabul correspondent in Afghanistan for a couple of years leading up to this past December. Sean, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. So what was the decision like for you uh, back in, let's see, it was 2012 when you went over there, mm-hmm. to go into a war zone? or How did that uh, decision go? Well, to be honest, that decision really kind of started in the fall of 2001 after September 11th. I was working at WBUR, the NPR station here in Boston, and I was a producer on The Connection, which was one of the nationally distributed talk shows. So we did a lot of international news, and after 9-11, we were constantly covering Afghanistan and the fallout of 9-11. And as a young producer, we would be reaching out to correspondents who are on the ground out there. It was people like Dexter Filkins and John Lee Anderson and uh, who was it, Johnny Diamond, I think, from uh, BBC. And I just remember I had this feeling sitting there as we were talking to these people out on the ground that, that I wanted to see this stuff firsthand. I, I felt as a journalist I wanted to see it through my own eyes, hear it through my own ears rather than rely on those people out there. So that really planted the seed of wanting to to get out and see these things firsthand. And so for years, I was trying to work my way into an opportunity to to get to these places. And it was uh, about a year after graduating from the Kennedy School, I took a job with an independent radio program in D.C., doing international affairs reporting. Mm-hmm. And for that program, I then started to travel to places initially like Sudan and Colombia and other places where there were either conflicts or, or failed state dynamics and gradually was able to get to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I'd been to Afghanistan twice in 2009 for, for that radio program. And when I was with NPR in the summer of 2012 and the opportunity came up, I mean, it was a pretty easy decision by that point. Again, all the mm-hmm. groundwork had been laid for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Now, was it something about the idea of reporting on international affairs or was it conflict in particular that drew you to it? It was definitely a combination of both. I, I certainly found myself more and more drawn to international affairs, but I think a lot of it is you look at what was in the news and it tended to be Middle East, Afghanistan, North Africa, you know, conflicts, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I just felt drawn to those stories, I think, in part because they were the most visceral stories going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, journalists obviously are drawn to different things. You have people who are incredible investigative journalists, financial journalists, and then there are those of us who sort of feel the pull to, to these kinds of places. And 
uh, just you know want to see and experience it and convey what's going on to to the audience. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Afghanistan was the United States' longest war, 13 years. and still you, is, for that matter. Yeah. Right. There are still 9,800 troops there, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you were there for the last couple of years of it, the official uh, presence there. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that right now people don't really care all that much about what's going on in Afghanistan. I imagine your point of view is that it's something that we should care more about. Is that the case? Well, certainly. It's... It, it has it has an impact on the region. It has an impact on a lot of American interests. It has it does have potential impact on American security going forward. I mean, there's still questions about what type of Al Qaeda presence is still there. What's happening with uh, potential Islamic states development there? So there are a lot of questions, and there are still troops there. And and the one thing that that doesn't get a lot of attention, there are roughly ten thousand troops, but there are more than double that number of U.S. contractors still over there carrying out various functions. And then you've got NGOs and development workers, so there's still mm-hmm. a huge investment over there. And it's it's difficult to to get people to look at that in the same way as they did in the earlier years of Afghanistan. There's no question. I mean, sustaining interest in a protracted conflict is extremely hard. I mean, I I remember taking a course with uh, Maxine Isaacs here uh, when I was a student about uh, sort of the press and public policy and international affairs and looking at things like Vietnam and even the difficulty then of keeping Americans engaged in a war where tens of thousands of Americans were were dying and and you saw decreasing support for the war and it's it's a difficult thing when people feel removed mm-hmm. and with fewer troops there people feel more removed and and there was definitely a fatigue i mean i i felt it when i got there in 2012 thinking this is still a vital story for for the american audience and over time, I just felt that there was less interest. Syria was getting worse. Mm-hmm. You had other problems in, in the Middle East, things that were, uh, you, you know, in, in the last year you had Ebola. I mean, it always seemed there was something else that popped up that was um, a more urgent story than mm-hmm. this long-simmering conflict. Right. And again, you know, there are still consequences. There are lots of American tax dollars over there. Mm-hmm. So there's certainly a reason for people to be paying attention and wondering what's happening with that and trying to hold public officials accountable for for what they're still doing over there. So the political situation, uh, it seems to have calmed down a little bit, but 2014 was a huge presidential election. Um, There was some intrigue after the the actual election took place. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry had to go over there and and, uh, help arrange things between the two uh, parties. But right now they have a president who seemed to come with um, some element of uh, uh, hope, I guess. Mm -hmm. Where is Afghanistan right now politically? Is is that president having an effect? Is Is he having success? He's... Having success, at least insofar as restoring relations with the West, things had really soured dramatically under the the last years of President Karzai, Mm -hmm. who became increasingly skeptical of the West, increasingly critical of 
Western action and policy, and in some cases for, for valid reasons. I mean, it wasn't just completely out of the blue. There were things that, that were going on. He had little control over the military activities going on in his own country. He had little control over all this foreign money. So there was clearly reasons why he was frustrated. But he, he really started going down this direction of accusing the U.S. of conspiring with Pakistan to support the Taliban, to destabilize Afghanistan, and things that he, he deeply believed these things, and they were very far from, from the truth. So relations were pretty terrible. Ghani, Ashraf Ghani mm-hmm. came in. He's you know, very well respected in the West. He's a you know, former World Bank official, uh, taught at Berkeley, taught at Johns Hopkins. And so people feel like he's the kind of person to lead the country. He can tackle corruption. He can try to modernize the bureaucracy there. And so there's been this optimism, but he's been in power going on seven months now. And in that time, they still haven't completed forming a cabinet. Mm. Uh, they've, they've struggled because they had to come up with this compromise to end the election standoff where the runner-up became the CEO of the government, sort of a, a weaker form of a prime minister, mm-hmm. as essentially a consolation prize to get him to accept the outcome of what was clearly a very fraudulent election. So they created this national unity government where you now have these two teams that are trying to share power and still figure out who gets to do what and does the CEO sign off on this or that. So there's been just a lot of process that they've been wrangling through that's Mm -hmm. held up actually the work of policy. And again, they're still finalizing the cabinet. Um, they are still finalizing the governors of the provinces of the country. President Ghani has done some things to try to tackle corruption. He's gone around and he's made surprise visits to various offices and fired police chiefs on the spot and things like that, and really trying to show that he's getting under the hood and trying to clean things up. But there's such a deep culture there of... Um, power brokers, you know, what people called warlords, essentially, mm-hmm. who, who are in power and, you know, rule through you know, often very non-democratic means, mm-hmm. use their money, power, and influence to get things done. And so, you know, corruption is is still endemic, and it's, it's going to take a long time. And having a president who is essentially kind of handicapped to a degree by having the CEO and, and having to, to cater to essentially having, you know, it's, it's like a lot of coalition governments where you have an opposition party maybe that's actually part of the ruling coalition. Mm-hmm. So you have to manage your governing coalition as opposed to just simply going forward with, with policy. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's one of the challenges that they're having. The West is still largely on board. They still support Ghani and, and are hoping to, to do more with him. Ghani is asking for more international support. He wants continued military engagement. And so for policymakers, again, there's still a, a positive relationship and a partner there that they see as someone who wants to, to leverage the international community to, to help build the country. Mm-hmm. But it's still such an enormous task. Right. I mean, you're still talking about a country that is so far behind the rest of the world in infrastructure, education, economy, all the vital components you need to build a country. 
And so that's really the question is how long is the international community going to stay engaged when you're not going to see revolutionary change in that country? And it's going to take generations to try to build something that's more stable and and self-sustaining. Afghanistan is a very provincial country, uh, very powerful governors and and, uh, various uh, strongmen all around the area. Mm -hmm. Is it even reasonable for us to expect for a central government to maintain the kind of control that is necessary to move Afghanistan forward? That's that's been one of the questions for a long time and Mm -hmm. one of the challenges. And in the past, the country has had kind of a, a natural balance that's that's emerged, and you do see a lot of local provincial control, and Kabul has has limited reach. And you have some of the other major cities, Mazari Sharif in the north or Kandahar in the south, that again have kind of their power base and extend to certain degrees. And that that's still an, an ongoing challenge. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is even if you have kind of a decentralized more federal type of system there the the district and provincial government governments still need resources they need support from Kabul Mm. and one of the things that has been the struggle is building that link between Kabul and the provinces and the district so that you have a district governor somewhere in Helmand province who's trying to build a school well, he doesn't have the money, he doesn't have the economic base there to raise the money to do it. So he's mm-hmm. trying to get it from the provincial government. So the provincial governor is going back to Kabul saying, we need X amount so we can do these things. And that money is not necessarily flowing well from, from Kabul. And some of that is just the weakness of the bureaucracy and some of its personal relationships. I mean, mm-hmm. you have governors who have good connections in Kabul and and things get done. You have others that aren't as well connected and things don't get done quite as well. So Mm -hmm. there there is that challenge and and there's often the question raised about whether or not it, it is really a cohesive country with a real national identity because, you know, in addition to the the provincial differences, you have strong ethnic divisions. You have the Pashtuns, Tajik, Uzbeks, Hazaras as the main different ethnic groups there with differing histories of of getting along with each other. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of what you see in the Middle East where it's it's very much political, that these aren't necessarily true ethnic divides, but they have their own political leadership who decide that they're going to say this ethnic group is getting too much relative to their population size, we deserve more, we should have 9% of the cabinet, mm-hmm. things like that. And so those struggles still go on and create this tension between having a, a national country with a national identity versus various groups that are still saying, no, we're actually 30% of the population, not 25 and therefore we get X more mm-hmm. than, than we're getting. And so the, these are some of the, again, the the layers of struggle in forming a, a cohesive nation. And a lot of it, you know, really comes down to scarcity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have a country where you don't have a lot in terms of resources, in terms of money, in terms of an economy. So everyone's really fighting for every little bit that they can get. So the district governor wants as much as he can get. Mm-hmm. The tribal chief here is is trying to get as much as he can out of the system to keep his power, keep his people happy. So a, a lot of these dynamics are a function of, of scarcity and poverty as, as well as just other power dynamics we see around the world. Mm-hmm. 
Now, all of these uh, political machinations are happening with, uh, in front of the backdrop of a really tenuous security situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taliban is certainly still very strong. Obviously, the uh, the NATO forces handed off security to the Afghani forces uh, some time ago. Is there any reason to believe that the security situation could improve? And um, and is it yeah. necessary uh, for for all the the political? Well, so it, it certainly has to, to improve. I mean, it's, it's whether you look at places like Colombia or other countries that have had long-running insurgencies, uh, you, you have to find a solution. I mean, you know, countries just can't can't live and prosper and, and people can't be safe in, in their homes. So you you have to find a solution. There's, there's, there's no way around that. As, as everyone has said for years, there is no military solution in Afghanistan. I mean, you had a peak of somewhere around 140,000 international troops in Afghanistan, and they did not soundly defeat the Taliban to the point that they came to a negotiating table and said, okay, we're done fighting, let's let's work this out. Mm-hmm. So if that presence of foreign troops can't militarily defeat this this insurgency, certainly the Afghan forces who are still not nearly as well trained, equipped, competent as as U.S. and other forces. So, as everyone says, there has to be a political solution. And then the question is, how do you how do you start that? And a lot of the, I've often thought in my head, thinking through some of the negotiations analysis that I, I studied here, mm-hmm. and how do you apply that to to the parties over there? And you know, the Taliban are not a cohesive entity. They have splintered. There are various factions. There are hardliners. There are, there are less hardliners. There are those who want to talk. There are those who want to fight. So problem number one is the this insurgent group is not coming to the table as, as a unified entity with a clear strategy. Mm-hmm. So that's one obstacle to a peace process. The government, the new government, still hasn't reconciled itself internally to approach to a peace process. You have some who just want to start giving away cabinet positions and other things to entice the Taliban to lay down their weapons, but you have some of the more anti-Taliban folks in in government and strongmen in Afghanistan saying no way they have to come in they have to lay down their arms first and then come in through a political process you can't just hand them positions if you do that then we're going to go outside government channels and fight these guys Mm -hmm. so you have these two sides that aren't reconciled internally and then still you look at the Taliban position where they want to negotiate from a position of strength. The government wants to negotiate from a position of strength. Well, the Taliban had a pretty decent year last year by their terms. They held a number of large offensives. They gained some ground in places, and they showed that they can inflict serious damage on Afghan forces. Afghan forces had record numbers of casualties last year. Mm-hmm. And the expectation is this year will be similar. Um, so far, indications are it's, it's a little bit worse. There's been more violence. So if the Taliban keep gaining ground, then they're increasing their leverage in potential peace talks. Mm-hmm. And so at what point do they say, okay, this is enough leverage, or let's keep fighting and gain more ground? And so this this is part of the the dynamic that someone needs to, to find a, a point of intervention that says, okay, look, 
you guys are, are, are coming to the table with, with this amount of strength and here's the framework that's that's possible and as i say that's that hasn't hasn't been done yet that formula is not there there have been questions about will the taliban talk to the afghan government for a while they wanted to talk to the u.s and the u.s said no this has to be an afghan process and the afghan government said no peace talks with the u.s so it's it's been a real struggle to find a formula to even start peace talks. Mm-hmm. And the new government of Afghanistan has been trying to reach out to Pakistan to get them to use their leverage over the Taliban to force them to the negotiating table. There are questions about where Pakistan's interests are at this point. So, again, back to the original question, yes, the, the, the violence has to be ended some way, um, but no one has come up with a roadmap to peace yet that that people are are willing to sign on to and it doesn't doesn't look like that's going to happen you know anytime soon if there's a conflict that people are paying attention to in the middle east right now it's the rise of isis in syria um obviously there are some isis elements in afghanistan but perhaps it speaks to the uh comp- how complicated the situation that you're portraying is but uh it seems like uh, the Taliban wants nothing to do with ISIS, yet mm-hmm. both of those uh, both of those groups they represent the kind of threat that the United States went into Afghanistan originally to eliminate, which is to be a safe harbor for um, people who might actually attack the United States directly. Is that uh, is that an actual uh, threat that we should still be concerned about, given the these two groups? gaining uh, popularity? Well, this is one of the things people are are still trying to sort out in Afghanistan. There are people who are declaring allegiance to the so-called Islamic State. Some seem to be disgruntled Taliban commanders who are essentially breaking off and saying, well, I'm not getting the attention I want from the higher command of the Taliban. I think if I go out and rebrand myself as as IS, I'm going to get more support internationally or resources or what have you. So you've got some of this d- dynamic going on. There are definitely some people who are ideologically aligned with uh, the Islamic State in, in Afghanistan, unclear what the numbers are. And yes, as you point out, Taliban and Islamic State are are opponents. They they are actually fighting each other. Those who are declaring allegiance to Islamic State are fighting with Taliban in Afghanistan. The head of the Islamic State has has criticized Mullah Omar, the, the head of the Taliban, mm-hmm. who may or may not still be alive. Uh, but is, but is, is this all good news for at least the United States' perspective? There, there is a bit of a, a silver lining and a hope that if these people start fighting each other, then there's a bit of a division and it makes it easier for Afghan forces with international support to, to try to clean up some of this mess. Mm-hmm. But still, the downside is it, it means there's, there's fighting going on, and mm-hmm. a lot of that fighting happens in and around populated areas, so civilian casualties are, you know, continue to rise and are, are at record levels. So there's concern about that, but the, the question is, what is what is the threat to the United States? And and again, the, you know, the history of this war is the Taliban were a domestic entity who never had any extraterritorial desires. They didn't mm-hmm. care about anything outside their borders. They wanted to run Afghanistan in their own brutal way. 
they allowed the ta- uh, sorry they allowed Al Qaeda to come in and set up shop there, and that's when the Taliban sort of crossed the line with the international community, and which is why they were thrown out of power because they wouldn't give up Al Qaeda after nine eleven. Mm-hmm. So, in one sense, even if the Taliban came back to power which is not what anyone in the international community wants, not what most Afghan people want. But if they did, and they said, we will make sure there is no al-Qaeda, there is no IS, there is nothing here that threatens the international community, that would actually serve America's primary interest, which is not having Afghanistan be a launching pad for, for attacks or threats against, against the U.S., uh, but the question is, even if the Taliban came back to power, which is unlikely, would they have the ability to to keep out other actors? Mm-hmm. And so this still is, and it's the same problem in Yemen. I mean, you have poor, undeveloped countries where large parts of the country are, are somewhat ungovernable. And so it makes it easy for these non-state actors to set up shop. Mm-hmm. And that's why the U.S. has argued to have a continued counterterrorism presence in Afghanistan to make sure that no one is able to to really set up operations in in Afghanistan. Um, so again, it's 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 kind of a weird mix right now. And is is the Islamic State something that does potentially pose a threat to the U.S. in Afghanistan? And it's still kind of unclear. And but it's something that people are watching and you know officials i've talked to saying yeah this is definitely a serious concern and one that you know again they're hoping it's just disgruntled taliban who are are just trying to make a name for themselves with with a new uniform and a new flag mm-hmm. uh and not people who are really looking to align with what's going on in syria and iraq and start looking at how can they attack foreign targets well sean carberry thank you so much for being on policycast today you're welcome you've been listening to the harvard kennedy school policycast produced by matt cadwallader and molly lanzarota follow us on twitter at policycast 